Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. For those of you guys that are here, it's great to see your faces. Also, for those of you guys that are home, uh, we, we miss seeing you guys and look forward to the day that we can all gather again together. And so uh, with that, I, I do want to say this, that uh, we have a new soundboard today. And where Jake said that it takes a lot of courage to step into church, it also takes a lot of courage for the guys to do what they do at the soundboard and running all that. Because here's the thing, they're invisible until something goes wrong and then everyone's looking at them, right? And so it just takes a lot of courage for them to be in the spot they're in. I know that the people at home benefit from them greatly and so do we here. So it'd be awesome if at some point we could just thank them or encourage them for the work they've been doing week in and week out. It's a pretty small team of uh, uh, people that helps out with that. So thankful for you guys and for what you guys do. So. A couple other quick announcements. As Jake said, we have our family meeting coming up, which is going to be February 28th. Here's my commitment, a shorter sermon. So 15 to 20 minute sermon so we can wrap up sooner, recognizing that uh, people are going to be hungry and that some of you need to get your children home for a nap. And so our goal is to just uh, um, make the most out of that hour. And so we'll be wrapping up a little bit early uh, so we can have time for our family meeting. We want it to be uh, a dialogue as well. So obviously, this is monologue. You guys don't get to ask questions, have input. And so we want to hear from you during that time as well. So also, Saints and Society is coming to a close. So we're going to be wrapping up Saints and Society next Sunday, which is our time in our series that we've been in the letter to the church in Corinth. So 1 Corinthians. Where are we going next? For those of you guys that like to get uh, ahead and prepared and want to read uh, ahead is that we are going to spend four weeks doing a short series titled um, Our Message and Our Mission. So that's what we're going to be for the most, uh, for, for the majority of February. I think you guys can see that there. Um, after that, we're going to be diving into the book of Judges, which is actually one of my favorite books in the Bible, but uh, definitely my favorite Old Testament book. And so that series is purposely spelt wrong. If you can see it up there, it's not just poor grammar. It's, it's uh, titled, Trust Me, I Know I'm Right. The premise of the book of Judges is it's the people that think that they're right in their own eyes. So they've, they, they've concluded that everything that they do is right. They know what's right and they know what's right from wrong. We see the in, ignorance in that as the book plays out. So it's just a fantastic book, and, but it's also a good picture to see what happens when people are turned over to what they think is the right thing to do and, and set their own standard of what's right in life. After that, in the summer, we're going to take a break from that, do the Sermon on the Mount uh, throughout the summertime, and we'll jump back in and finish uh, judges in the fall. So that's where we're headed. If you guys want to read ahead, um, you can read ahead by starting to read Judges. It's a pretty beefy book, so you can dive into that. With that, one last thing. Around our house, we hope to motivate our kids with the gospel, meaning that we want our kids to be motivated by grace. Um, we want our kids to be motivated by the gospel, by the good news. We don't want to drive motivation by guilt or shame or fear or anything else. One of the things, though, that does help is ready whip the the cans you shake up and spray whipped cream in and so sometimes around my house when i want things done or want the house cleaned up if the gospel's not working my backup plan with my kids is a can of ready whip you'd be surprised by how quick they can clean a room or something like that okay so it's a little bit of extra motivation i'm convinced if paul had access to ready whip when he wrote the, a lot of the books in the first testament his chapters on parenting would be a little longer so what what are we going what we're going to start doing today is there's some sheets placed right up here, and they have eight questions on them today. It's not always going to be eight questions, but they're for anyone in here that is under 18. So for the parents that have children that are uh, sitting in, um, 
These are for you. So kids, you can come up here and grab them. My, motiva my motivation for you today is going to be, we have some stickers, there's some hats, or there's uh, some gift cards we just had laying around the office to Farmers Union uh, to grab a coffee. But here's what I would encourage the parents to do for an extra motivation is there's a spot on the back of these to sign for the parent for to date. Is if you can get your uh, children to do it for four weeks in a row, my encouragement would, would be at that point to take your kids out to lunch wherever they want, okay? Now, I don't wanna put a financial strain on anyone, so if that does, then the church is definitely willing to help out with something like that, and we can find other people that are willing to help out with something like that. But we want this to be a time for our children and parents to, to be able to interact and talk through it. So parents, I have answer sheets. Don't just give your kids the answers. Actually make them think through. Our sermons are posted online, they can go back to it. Kids, pick someplace wise, like Dickie Joe's, because next door is Dickie Yo's, and you can just be like, oh, Dickie Yo's is next door, we're already here. So. Be thoughtful in that, but grab one of these. If you guys want, kids, you can come up and grab one now and you can start to see what the questions are and you can fill them out during the sermon. So this is a time where you can write. We're also gonna be getting some NLT versions of the Bible instead of ESV. It's a little bit friendlier for some of our kids to work. through. So with that, while I pray, if you guys want, hunters, just remove the sheets are up here. You can grab them. I will pray and we'll dive in. God, we thank you for this morning, for this day. We thank you for your word. Father, we pray through your word this morning that you would correct us, that you would humble us, that you would encourage us, that you would minister to us, that you would heal us. We thank you, Father, that you've given us the gift of your word and that ultimately what the word does is, is, is lift up the greatest gift of the gospel, the good news of Christ, of who you are and what you've done, what you've finished, what you've accomplished, what you've completed. Thank you. We pray that wherever we find ourselves this morning, if we're hurting and grieving, if we're anxious, that right now through your spirit, you would instill just a sense of peace in us, Father, through this truth, that you're good. And also through the truth of God, you're over all things. You're in control of all things. Father, we praise you that you're not just reactive, reacting to everything going on in this earth, but instead you're in full sovereign control of everything that goes on. At any moment, everything small and big in our lives, you are over. You're over our country, you're over the leaders, you're over everything, God. And I pray that that brings us a sense of just confidence and peace and trust. Speak to us this morning, encourage us, strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be covering a really large section today. We're going to be looking at verses 35 through the end of the chapter. So there's no way I'm going to be uh, reading this right now, reading it as we go and, and diving into it verse by verse. So let me give you the structure of where we're headed, okay? Verses 35 through 41, we're actually going to see how Paul is talking about uh, crops, and he's using uh, planting crops in creation to explain resurrection. Okay, that's 35 through 41. Then in 42 through 49, Paul is going to actually transition at that point to the actual physical body to explain resurrection and what's happened. He's going to end today with 50 through 58, um, explaining about the beauty of resurrection, but also what it means for the people that are currently alive when Christ returns. So that's where we're headed. He's going to use something as simple like Jesus did crops in creation to explain resurrection. He's going to then transition to the actual body, and then he's going to close out with the beauty of resurrection. Here's one thing I would say is that in all of us, we're created in God's image, and we have this pull toward resurrection. 
If you're here today or if you're here online and you're a Christian or a non-Christian, there is a pool in us for God's creation and for his resurrection. Where do we see this? In Hollywood, over and over and over again. If you look at Hollywood movies, what we oftentimes see is this like beautiful story. I, I'm a movie guy, so I love movies. But if you love books, we can also see that, that you'll finish a good book and go, man, that was a good book. Or man, that was a good movie. And what we're recognizing that in that, there's an incredible storyteller who has told a story. We, we recognize that in movies. And what we realize is this. Christian or non-Christian, that the reason why we like movies and like good movies and why we like good stories is that we're all created in the, in the image of the greatest storyteller of all time. Now, because of having two daughters, a lot of the movies that I watch might be different than yours, but we'll use Frozen, for example. In Frozen, Frozen 1 or Frozen 2, you actually see resurrection. In the first one, you see that Anna dies and then she comes back to life. But in the second one, you see that Elsa dies and she comes back to life. But what you also see is that Olaf dies and then she resurrects his body and brings him back to life. In all of this, we can actually see our culture and our society's pull toward resurrection. In, in the very movies we watch, we are seeing that, look, th these are all telling this story out of the image of the greatest storyteller. It's because we're all created in the image of God. And there's a sense in us to create, to create good movies, create good stories. When a deer looks at an apple tree, it sees a source of food. When a human looks at an apple tree, it sees apple cobbler, it sees apple pie. It sees something that they can use to make wood with. It, it, they see something you could use as a hardwood to make a tobacco pipe with. I mean, there's all different options. Someone could look at an apple tree and go, this is what it could be used for. Why? Because we're creating the image of a God who is the creator. And so as we look at resurrection, we, we need to understand that there is something intrinsically in us that is pulled toward resurrection already. It, it, it's something we know. It's something we desire. It's something that we look at even in Hollywood mo movies and go, that's beautiful. I have a pull toward that. We also need to, to, to see this, that for Paul to talk about something at such length, as Ronnie said last week, at such length means this is important. Paul's just not like consuming, an, uh, the, in a sense, the largest chapter in this letter just to write information. It's expensive to produce information. It's expensive to write. And so as Paul's writing about this, there, it is important. And as you can see, the language that Paul uses, he is chiding. It, it is diatribal. It is, it, it is, in a sense, Paul exhorting and challenging them sternly. Why? Because if you look at where Ronnie left off last week, he's telling them, do not be deceived. Bad company, he's, it's in quotations, meaning Paul's quoting something that they might have said, ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, he says. As is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul, from the beginning of this letter, almost to the end, is in different ways, call, reminding us who we are. We're saints. Remember, over and over and over again, the thing we, we've just tried to keep... Uh, putting in front of you is that saints means holy one or set apart. It's not a place that you arrive at a future state. It's the place where you start in Christianity by grace through faith in Jesus. Your starting point is holy and set apart. What Paul is saying, step into society. 
you see what the Corinthians were doing was pulling back and pulling away from society. And then they're saying stuff like, oh, bad company. Um, we, we don't want to have bad, bad company. It's, it, it's going to rub off on us. And Paul's like, no, no, no. There's some that don't have any knowledge of God at all. What Paul is constantly saying is this, is sound doctrine, sound teaching is important. Through it, it shapes our lives. And through it, we step into culture and we meet culture in their terms, not on their terms. We could look at something like this and go, man, how foolish were they? They, they thought that, as Ronnie said last week, that maybe the resurrection of Christ had already come, that they already had their resurrected bodies. And we go, man, we're, they're just, just so dumb. The problem is, is they lived in a culture that was extremely pluralistic. They lived in a culture that was very secular, very liberal. And that culture influenced the Christians heavily. We too live in Eugene, Oregon. And culture influences us in ways that we might not realize. And so Paul is saying, you've, you've been led to believe something that's not true. This is so important. Let's not get this wrong. Let's come back to it. So that's kind of where Paul is at and, and where he's setting this up. Because again, Gnosticism, which is what was a big thing back then, was a big teaching, is that people believe the physical body doesn't matter. It's only a surrounding to something spiritual inside that is one day going to be released. But the physical body and what we do with it, it doesn't really matter. And so Paul is coming against a lot of that teaching. So let's, let's dive in. Starting with 35. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? So let's pause. Where, where it was left off last week, there's a lot of confusion about the resurrection. And then so Paul gets into this. It looks like it might be a hypothetical debate, but it might actually be a real debate. These might be real questions that people had. You, you can see the quotations to start here, but someone will ask quotations. It seems that what is happening here is people are asking this question. Well, wait, wait, wait. So you're saying that one day we're going to have resurrected bodies, right? And, and then it's like, but how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body will they come? Like, these are the questions they're asked because they're like, remember Stan, Stan got his head chopped off by the guillotine. What about Stan? You know, what about so-and-so? His body was completely burnt up. What do we do with someone like that? And so they're asking these questions thinking like, look, the physical body got destroyed. <laughs> what exactly do you think is going to happen to it? And so they're asking these questions. Look at 36. Uh, our English language is so polite because the Greek actually just reads you fool. And the NIV actually reads, um, uh, it, it's actually targeting the argument itself. So it's not even going to the person. But the actual Greek is it, here in the ESV, it says, you foolish person. It's actually just you fool. Um, that's Paul. Paul is passionate here. When Paul gets passionate, let's pay attention. <laughs> he says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow uh, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps, of wheat or of some other grain. Let's pause there. The reason why we don't get excited about the afterlife is for two reasons, okay? The reason why we don't actually get excited about the afterlife is that we, we've had a lot of images put forth, or we've had a lot of things come at us that somehow make the afterlife not human. L let me say this up front, for those who have ears to hear let them hear if you have a cheat in front of you. God's plan has always been humanity, humankind. Adam, Adam actually means humanity. It, 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 it means humankind. So God's plan has always been a male and a female, man and woman in humanity, in the state of, uh, of, of human flesh. That has always been God's plan. And even when Christ resurrects, he resurrects with a human body. 
But for some reason, we have this weird thought of us resurrecting as like little cherub angels with wings. And I have some pictures because these are actually like, like I've heard people say all over and over again that so-and-so is an angel now. And so uh, <laughs> this, <laughs> this, is <laughs> this is one of them. And I think of people like DJ and Paul and myself that if you've waited a lifetime for your resurrected state of hair and that's it, you're going to be disappointed. There's one like this. And one more, I think, yeah. Sweet little instruments. And so you have pictures like this coming your way. No one gets excited <laughs> about this, right? No one's like, man, I can't wait till I float around playing the violin as a cherub with little wings. I, I don't think most people generally get excited about that. But if you understand that when Christ resurrected, he resurrected in a human body, it's exciting. Humanity has always been part of God's plan. His plan here, his plan on earth, but his plan it, when the new heavens and the new earth come to earth to have humanity. The other reason why we don't get excited about death, what someone said at our um, gospel community this week, is death was never part of God's design. Okay, death is the antithesis of who God is. God is life. He's immortal. He's infinite. He's eternal. He never ends. So death is the very thing that is opposite of who God is. You don't normally, normally wake up in the morning going, oh man, I'm alive still. You, you would normally wake up ex to some degree excited that you have life. People don't long for death, don't get excited for death because we were never created for death. We're creating the image of God who is eternal, ex for, forever existent, immortal. And so it's, it's okay because uh, someone brought it up and some people are like, I don't actually like get super excited for death. That's okay. It's not just me that says this. John Piper says the same thing. It's because you weren't created for it. You're creating the image of a, of, of a God who is eternal. Again, as I said, some of the people were confused by how's this whole resurrection thing going to work out? Before we get to that, let me say this. We don't think about death and we like to avoid it. I think this was mentioned last week. We like to avoid it because it makes us uncomfortable. One theologian said that it's a preacher's job almost every week to bring the people in front of him to this reminder that we all have this one thing in common. We will all face death. And every day we wake up, we are one day closer to death. But we don't like to talk about it. It seems morbid. It seems kind of like, Ugh, I don't know what to do with that. that. We all share this in common in this room. We are all going to die. And the day you were born, you were one day closer to that death. It's a bit morbid to think about, but here's the thing. Every day, our bodies start to, at some point, grow more frail and more weak. I watched a video by J.I. Packer, a man who I love, and, and he talks about a moment in his life when he felt weak, but he said that now, at his age, he just feels so weak, and he can feel that his body is giving out. Are all of us, I know it's hard to believe, all of us at some point are going to reach that point where we start to feel our bodies giving out. Why? Because death is knocking on our door. And so the reason why Paul's talking about this is, is it's important. You're, you're all going to die, but here's the question. Christian or non-Christian, listen, here's the question. Everyone is going to die. But will you just die a physical death or will you die a spiritual death as well? Everyone's going to die. So this is why Paul's like engaging this with some passion. They're, they're very confused. They're like, wait, so how's this going to happen? I don't understand it. Paul uses the language of seed. Here's what he means. When you sow a seed, when you take a seed 
and you put it in the ground, no one gets really excited about that, right? A, a, a seed doesn't necessarily look at that and go, wow, that's amazing, that's life. But when that seed grows into a redwood, people go, wow, that's amazing, and it comes from a seed. So, so Paul is like, when, whenever you place the seed in the ground, you cover up, you bury it, out of that comes life. But first, something has to go into the ground before it can come up. He's just, he's just using very simple language, though it might be a little bit hard to track. That's all he's saying. When you put something in the ground, it has to be buried, a kernel, wheat, some form of grain, and then comes life from that. But death must come first. Then he gets to 38, which I love. Look at the wording here, but God gives it a body as he has chosen. So he's explaining this is going to happen just in the same way that we sow seeds and then those seeds turn into trees. So to our bodies one day, he's going to get to in, in, in this next section, they're going to be sown into the ground. And then out of that, for the saints in Christ will come a resurrected body one day. But look what he says in 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen and for each kind of seed, its own body. Here's what's really amazing to me, is that God plans out our salvation before the foundations of the world. It's by grace we have been saved, not by works, so that no man can boast. This is an act of God. God also has planned out our resurrected body. If you don't believe, look right here, but God gives it a body. So in our resurrected state for the saints, God gives us all a body as he has chosen and each kind of seen his own body. So we're going to have different bodies, but God has, listen, God has already chosen our resurrected body that he has for his children. I think that's awesome. Why? Because sometimes we can have a very sadistic view of God or think that God is somehow reacting to our very things that we do each moment by each day. As in like, Hey, I saw how vain you were on this earth. So afterlife, going to be overweight. I know you really wanted to be tall and you made that an idol. So your, your resurrected body is probably going to be like really short. I saw what you did with your left hand and how you stole that. So you can forget about having one of those with your resurrected body. It's not like God is sitting there making these decisions based upon what he sees us doing in this life. God, before the foundations of the world, chose us in Christ to be saved, but he also already has and has always had a resurrected body for us. It's hard to get past this element we can see in scripture. It's God that does the choosing. It's, it's God that's laid out. But here's the cool thing. Now Paul in 39 trans transitions to creation to show in the same way there's always been diversity upon mankind, it's always going to be God's plan, even in a resurrected state, to have diversity. For not all flesh, 39, is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another kind for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Notice always bodies, soma, that's the, that's the Greek word. But the glory of the heavenly one is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. So this gets rid of Gnosticism in the sense that there's earthly bodies, there's heavenly bodies. Our heavenly resurrected body is going to be better than our earthly body. Why? Here's the main point for today. The saints now and later. I really wanted those candies so you guys could remember this that were popular back when I was growing up, but I can't find them anymore. But, but the concept of now and later is this. We see this throughout scripture. 
is there's a reality that right now for those that are in Christ are holy, righteous, and set apart. Every moment of every day, God looks at you and sees not your works, but the works of Christ. But the problem is, is right now on this earth, we are in also a battle against sin. And so sin is a very real thing. And so we don't experience the fullness of this until later, which the big word is called, and it's called glorification in our glorified state. Because one day the realities of now, how God sees us will fully be experienced when there is no sin. And we are in the presence of God, completely righteous, without a body that decays, without any sort of weakness or anything like that. Look at 41. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. From, uh, from star differs from star in glory. What does this mean? That our earthly bodies are different. Humanity is different. There's a lot of diversity. God loves diversity. In the resurrected state, God is going to continue to love diversity. There's going to be diversity. It also means this, that it, that it matters what we do with our physical bodies because God is still calling them good. And which rules out Gnosticism in the sense that it doesn't matter what you can do, you can just adopt whatever view, you can use your body, you can indulge in any way you want because it, it doesn't matter. And Paul, and Paul would say, no. Our earthly bodies are good, but our heavenly bodies are gonna be better. Then in this next session, he, he goes on to explain in 42 through 49, but we'll pause at 44 before he jumps into some Adam language. So let's read there. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, remember this word sown, goes in the ground, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. Look at this language here. It is sown, it is put in the ground in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Okay. What is going on? Paul moves to a human body. So he's using this language before. Hey, in order to have your resurrected body, in order to get that, your physical body here on this earth has to be sown into the ground. Up from that will come your resurrected body. And this is what he says, which, again, is something so interesting. He says that this body that goes into the ground is dishonor. Why would Paul say that? Think about that. So as a seed goes in the ground, so now a body goes in the ground. He says this body in, in 43, it goes in the ground in dishonor. Why? Because this, every time we're at a funeral, and every time you drive by a cemetery is a constant reminder of sin. Now, it's not to say the life that someone lived was dishonorable, but death itself is dishonorable. Why? Because it is the full weight of what sin leads to. This is it. When we lower someone in the ground, we are getting to see this is the result of sin. Sin and death are married. And so what Paul is saying, it is a dishonor for someone to be going into the ground. It's a dishonor when we ride by this, uh, drive by a cemetery and see just all of these signs from these people who passed because this was never God's intention to have death. It's dishonorable. God doesn't like it. God hates sin. He hates death because death is the result of sin. And so with that, we don't look at it and go, 
What honor? Again, we can say the life they lived was honorable, but death itself, not an honorable thing. Because what goes into the ground is a body that was decaying. We don't look at cancer. We don't look at the sicknesses and the things that I know that we have family members with, even in this room that are going through and go, that's honorable. We see, man, that is the result of living in a fallen and sinful world. This is the result of what sin does. And the other thing is this, is sometimes we think, hey, this is what a life of sin will lead to one day death. But we can die a million deaths now by giving our lives over to sin before we die our physical death as well. When, when we give way to sin in our lives, we can die over and over and over again because each sin that we flirt with, that we play with, that we deal with, that sin will, unchecked, run its full course and lead to death. And sometimes it, it'll just be on a slow course. And so if I set a ship on a course and it's off by five degrees, you're not going to notice that much over 100 miles. But over 1,000 miles, that ship is going to end up somewhere else. So the same thing goes. We can flirt with sin a little bit, but over the course of a lifetime, you're going to end up somewhere else. Paul is saying, this is not honorable. What is honorable is when God, when that goes into the ground, what God has in store for us with our resurrected bodies that he's already planned for us before the foundation world. That is awesome. He's like, this is cool. What goes in the ground, it's perishable. What comes up is imperishable. He's like, what goes in the ground, it's weak, it's decaying. But what comes up is raised in power. It's raised in glory. What goes in the end of the ground is a natural body. And what is raised is a spiritual body. Think about that. One day, for those who have placed their trust and faith in Christ, we will be given a resurrected body, a human body. We're not going to be cherubs floating around. We are going to have a body. And here's the coolest thing about it. The, the older you get, I think the more this excites you. Because you are going to have a body that will no longer fall into decay. You are no longer going to feel shame you are no longer going to feel guilt and you're no longer going to feel the presence or any sort of power of sin because it's going to be gone away with. Your new body lives on forever. Aging is, won't be a thing. Why? Because our new resurrected bodies are eternal. They're immortal. There's a lot that we don't know about what it's going to look like, but what Paul does tell us is it's going to be amazing when we are resurrected into our new bodies because the perishable, the dishonorable, the weak, it's all gone. And what's raised up is new power and honor. Then he kind of shifts into some language that's hard to understand in, in 45. Before I do that, I love what R.C. Sproul said. He wrote a beautiful letter um, to, to be read at his funeral. And, and, he, and it said something like this, I might butcher it, but he said, if you're reading this now, he goes, just know that I've just changed my address and I'm now living in my new address. For R.C. Sproul, he had the same theological language as Paul. Paul uses the word sleep because he's like, for a Christian, it's like sleeping. Death is not the end. It's a stepping stone to get into eternity with God forever. And that's what R.C. Sproul un understood. He's like, yeah, he's like, I just have my new permanent address and he knows that one day he's going to have his new permanent body. It can raise the question, what happens between now and the time Christ returns? Because we don't get these resurrected bodies until Christ returns. I don't know, but I know what the scripture says. Absent from flesh, present with the Lord. That's what I do know. And that one day 
our resurrected bodies that are sweet and awesome, he has those waiting for us. Look at 45. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from, he uh, from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust and is the man of heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of heaven. Here's part of Paul's now and later talk, okay? Because what he's saying is, look, he's just using chronological language and order. And he's like, in the same way that Adam came first, and Adam was a physical being, so what, what has to happen is the physical first before the spiritual happens. And he's using pointing to Christ as the spiritual being. He, he's also using other type of language here. He might be referring to original sin, um, that, that, that all of us are marred by sin, that we sin because we have a sin nature. But what he's also pointing to is that we need to be born again by, by the new spirit, by the second Adam, which is Christ. Paul uses this language again in Romans 5. So I know it's confusing, but what he's saying is that the physical first and the spiritual, but what we need to have in order to make sure that we have these resurrected body and this resurrected hope is to know that we've, in a sense, been resurrected with Christ now. And that we've been born again. Paul uses the language, uh, uh, Jesus uses the language born again with Nicodemus, which is very weird language, right? Because no one can be born again. And, and that's what Nicodemus is saying. He's like, how can you be born again? Like you can't go back to the canal and control the process. And Jesus is like, exactly. You didn't control your first birth. It is of grace. And, and you don't control your second birth. It is also of grace to be born again. And what he's saying, in order to have this physical body, you must be born again. There is no resurrected body for those that are not born again on this earth in Christ with the second Adam. This is what Paul's trying to say. I love 49. It says this, just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Many manuscripts don't read this way. If some of you guys have a um, study Bible after uh, we shall also bear, there might be a little number there. And, and if you trace that number to the bottom of your page, you'll, you'll probably see that uh, the earlier manuscripts read, let us bear. So not we shall also bear, but let us bear. Okay. I think both work for the now and later it is that Paul is saying, look, right now you are a saint, but later you're going to fully bear the image uh, of God. So all that you are right now before God and how he sees you, one day you're going to experience the fullness of that. Right now in Christ, you bear back to God his perfect image, but one day you're going to live with that reality and it's going to be amazing. But what it, it can also be read is this, let us bear, and the word for bear is wear. Let us wear the image of God, of uh, uh, the man of heaven. So right now in this state here on this earth, let us wear the image of the man of heaven. So what is he saying right now? Here on this earth, let us wear, let us wear the image of the man of heaven. Let us wear the righteousness of Christ. What instills confidence in people is to know who they are in Christ and to know that you wear his garments, his righteousness, his perfection, his purity. A football player does not go out on the field with any level of confidence if he's dressed like a golfer. In the same way, if, if, if we go out into, uh, into the world which Paul also describes as a war zone, without remembering that we wear the righteousness of Christ, we will be insecure people. 
And here's the thing. We can deal with our insecurities in many different ways. We can start to wear other stuff. We can wear being athletic. We can wear being fit. And we can wear all of this stuff to place confidence in. But if our bodies are going to decay, how safe is that? You can shift if you want. I did that too. And then you can start to wear theology. You can get so caught up in that, but you're also not dealing with what's underneath here on the inside and knowing that Christ has made us his and made his righteousness our own. And that's what we wear. That's what we bear. That's what we reflect to the world. That instills confidence. So there's a now aspect to it. There's a later. We see this throughout scripture. And I'm not going to read all of these verses I have right now, but if you guys will jump to Ephesians 2, 5 through 6, I think we'll have it on the screen. It says this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So God made us alive together with Christ. Look here. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay. I don't know if, if you see that, but this is the now and later that for those that have placed their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, your resurrection is so secure in Christ that you will be resurrected with him and seated with him one day for eternity that Paul talks about it as a present reality in Ephesians. He's like, look at this. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us. Look, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus currently, not talking about some uh, a future thing. He's like, Christ has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So right now, Paul's like, this resurrection you have is such a security that he talks about as, as a present reality that you've been raised up and seated with him already. This is the now and the later reality for Christians. Next, we see in 50 through the end of the chapter that we're going to see beauty and also the, the picture of resurrection for those that are already alive. So Paul says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So all this to say what he said before, flesh and blood has to be born again. Flesh and blood has to be sown into the earth. And then comes up a, a spiritual. This is the order that it happens. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So must die and then be raised. Behold, he says, okay, I tell you a mystery. I I picture Paul leaning and he's like, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What's he saying? Because your next question is going to be, what about those that are alive? So when, when Christ comes back one day, those that have gone into the grave at, uh, they're going to be raised up into their new resurrected bodies. Okay. So you get that people that have been dead. When Christ returns on on this earth, we're going to be given our resurrected bodies. But he's like, you, you, some of you might ask, what if you're alive when Christ returns? And he's like, so he says this, in a moment, 52, in the twinkling of an eye as a last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. If you are alive, Paul's not saying that he believes that he's going to be here, but he's referring we to us, to any saint, that in that moment, you will be raised up in the twinkling of an eye. That what will happen first, we know from Thessalonians, is that the dead who are already dead, they're going to be given their resurrected bodies. But then at that moment, the people that are left alive, they're also going to be transitioned in that, in that moment. In, in the twinkling of an eye, they're going to be given their new resurrected bodies. Paul's saying. Look here, 53. For the imperishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death, as Mark read earlier from Isaiah, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Then it says this, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Okay. So whenever Christ comes back and he returns, there is death is going to be swallowed up in victory. Sin is going to be swallowed up. There will be no death. There will be none of that. We will have our resurrected bodies with him for eternity. The reason why Hollywood writes this in is because as stated before, this is something that we long for, but the resurrection of Christ is not a Hollywood fairy tale. It's actually going to become an eternal reality for us. Frozen one and frozen two is fictional. This is a real story that we get real resurrected bodies that we get to be with Christ forever. But then he, he says something here that, that might throw us in 56. It says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. What is he saying? He's saying that what removes the sting of death is sin that has been dealt with. Death will still have its sting if sin is not dealt with. If your sin is not dealt with, death will have a sting. It will not be a stepping stone for you. It will not be a change of address. It will be, as much as we don't like to say it, your physical death and your spiritual death. There's a gravity to what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is the law is good, but it's really bad news. Why? Because the law just proves that we're sinners. The law just proves our sin nature. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The law shows us this is God's good and holy and perfect standard. And then what it shows us is this is the measure and standard that God judges by. And then we have to go, either I've met that, I've loved my neighbor and I loved God, every moment of every second of every day, more than I've loved myself, or I haven't. And then you have to say, is, is God going to judge me according to my goodness or according to his goodness? And he judges according to his. That's not good news. That's really bad news. Grammar does not excite me, just to lay that out there. But there's a couple times in the Bible where grammar excites me, and this is one of them. We see Paul come in with these big conjunctions here in 57. He goes, but... In Romans 7, he has this language too. He's like, I don't like the things I'm doing. I do the things I don't want to do. The things I know I should be doing, I don't do. And then he says the same thing there. He's like, but thanks be to God. Same thing here, but thanks be to God who gives, who gives. The Greek word for gives here, this word you can underline in your Bible, gives. It actually takes on a past, a present, and a future. So who gave who gives and who is giving. This is the good news of the gospel. Thanks be to God who gives the victory. This is the other piece of grammar that excites me. Underline this if you want your Bibles. It's a definite article. It's the. He doesn't say who gives a victory or one victory or some kind of victory. He says the victory. The victory. It's a definite. It's a once and for all. It's not a my victory. It's outside of me. It's the victory. It's a past event through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you read here, you don't see you. <laughs> Thanks be to God who gives us other than the recipients of a gift, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What, what we start to see is that there was a first Adam 
And what the first Adam did is he made a decision in a garden about a tree. But the second Adam also made a decision in a garden about a tree. The first Adam inside of the garden chose that he would take and indulge sin and he would take something from the tree and he would feed himself. The second Adam, when he came, made a decision in a garden that he would go to the tree and not take sin, but take sin punishment for us upon a tree. You might be confused because with every wince that, uh, uh, that has happened in Christ on the cross, with every flinch, with every scream, with every agony, as you hear the nails clanking, you might think, this guy must be like the, set, like the first Adam, but he's not. The first Adam took sin for himself. The second Adam took sin upon himself. The first took what he wanted, but the second took the wrath that we deserve. One of the big things I love is when Jesus appears to Thomas is that his resurrected body has nails. Thought about that? And Thomas is like, I need to see those scars. I love this because in my moments of sin, in my moments of shame, in, 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 in my moments of failure, what I get to remember, and I said this last year, it's not what my hands have wrought but it's what his hands have brought. I just picture the nailed scarred hand saying, I've done everything. I've finished it. You, can, you have my love. You have my acceptance. You have my peace. I've embraced you. Shame gone right here. Guilt gone, sin gone. It's about what these hands have done. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords says, I've made your sin mine and, I, and I've made you mine. He says, I made your wrath mine and my love yours. I've made your unrighteousness mine and my righteousness yours. I've made forsakenness mine, and I've made the Father's acceptance yours. I've made hell mine, I've made heaven yours, all from the scars. I've made death mine, and my victory over it yours, which takes us back to the victory. As a Christian, my encouragement in this is we start to wrap up. Don't worship your victory over sin. That's, that's, that's idol worship. Let me say it again. Don't worship your victory over sin. Don't also worship your failure with sin. Instead, worship the victory that Christ provided for our sin and over our sin. Look, the now and later is this, is God is not going to be more committed to you at a later date in life when you've overcome more sins. God is just as committed to you now as he will be in the future because God is not committed to your victory or to your defeat. God is always and has always been and always will be committed to Christ's work on your behalf. Now and later, it's not our victory over sin. It's not our failure that defines us. It's the victory which belongs to Christ that he's imputed and given to us that that is what defines us. This morning, I had to be reminded of this, even as I was preparing to preach, that that belongs to me, that that victory has become mine, that I see my sin, I see my shortcomings, I see my failure from uh, a couple weeks ago when I preached last, our staff graciously exhorted me and said, Rick, the way you came off uh, raised shame and, and guilt in, in people like, like you exhorted in, in such a way that did not feel loving. And from the depths of my heart, the truth is it wasn't loving. I was angry and I was frustrated at a bad spot. And I'm thankful for a staff to exhort me on that. In that moment, I, I have to say that um, that's, that's evidence that I am not the hero that I'm not a good place to look to for your source of hope, but Christ in his victory is, which is why we can recognize our faults and failures because of his victory and worship that. We go from lawbreaker to lawkeeper. Therefore, 
He says in 58, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Let me, let me end here. Paul's, Paul's promise that you're going to get a resurrected body one day and be resurrected with Christ is from the victory that Christ has already done. The, the reality that you now experience Though moment by moment, you might struggle to believe that you're defined by Christ's victory and you feel dirty. Maybe you feel shameful from something you've done. The reality is that that victory is fully and completely yours, which is why you know that one day you will be with him for eternity in that state of utter and complete perfection. But he says this, don't let your work be in vain. Don't labor in vain. Here's my challenge to you guys. I want to challenge graciously today. What are you living for now? This is why resurrection matters. And this is why Paul's in a sense bringing this up and ends with this. What are you living for? Francis uh, uh, Chan did uh, one time stretched a rope across the room and he drew a little dot in the rope. The rope was supposed to represent eternity and he drew a little mark on it and said, this is your life. You see, when Paul talks about being immovable and steadfast and always abounding in the work of the Lord, what he's talking about is where is your work at? What are you working toward? Many people, if they're being honest, aren't doing kingdom work or doing anything for the kingdom. What they're working on is everything for themselves and for this world. And so my challenge, because I've heard people say, hey, whenever the community looks like this, I might step in or whenever the church has this or has this, here's, here's what we need. People to abound in the work of the Lord. You don't wait for people, your church family to say, hey, when, whenever someone else does this, then I'll go or I'll step into this or I'll, I'll, I'll welcome this. What Christians are supposed to do is we're all supposed to bear scars and we're all supposed to have tears because we are not just saying that person over there is supposed to be doing the work of the kingdom. Paul, he bore scars and he cried tears that each one of us is supposed to be so invested in the lives of one another and in the church family that we bear scars and that we bear tears for the people in our family. We are not just thinking about ourselves, but, but we are so invested in the lives of other people. So my question is, where are you invested? And are you willing to ask someone where your priorities are at? If you're not, that already tells you where your priorities are at. So my challenge is this, ask someone this week, say, do you see the work that I'm doing and, and where my investment is, where my passion is? Do you see that being caught up and tied up, as Paul says, as labor that's in vain or labor that's for the kingdom of God? Ask someone who's willing to be honest with you and just ask them that. I'll call the worship team up. We can close in prayer. And I hope that the saints will remember that the reality of what we have now is going to be fully experienced in the life to come in our resurrected bodies later. Father, we praise you for this truth. And I hate seeing death and I see the dishonor of it. I see the dishonor in sin. I see the dishonor of sin in my own life. So God, I'm praying for you to put that to death now and put it to death in our church family. And I pray that we, what is raised up now is what is raised up for eternity. That we live selflessly because God, who you've made us in your sight are selfless people. In Jesus name we pray, amen.